0: You know, our art, the pictures that we draw, the art that we create, tells us something about the nature of the way that we view reality. It says something about us as much as it says something about the thing that we're trying to give voice to or picture to. And you can see this throughout uh, history as you've looked at art from everything from uh, Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel, where he actually drew himself into it, to the picture that your child might draw. And I believe that these pictures, as we create them, uh, tell us something not only about ourselves and others, uh, but if we're drawing Jesus, it can tell us a little bit about the way that we view Christ Himself. And so I don't know about you, but um, as I've looked at a number of pictures and art throughout the years uh, of Jesus, I find that all too often we tend to domesticate and tame Jesus to look more like us than the Jesus of the Bible. And our art, I think, can tell us a lot about how we view Jesus. In fact. Uh, I, last night, looked up uh, some images of what it looks like for people to craft art after the image of Jesus. And I found a lot of really interesting stuff. In fact, I'd be careful about doing this kind of thing. Uh, but one I found, one of the first images that came out, was a guy who had a large upside down cross on his back made of bacon. Now, um, I'm one of those guys who thinks bacon makes everything better, but that is definitely like sacrilegious, right? Um, Yeah, so I I don't think that's exactly what you want to do with art. Um, Now, please don't look that up right now. I'll never get you back. No pun intended. Others displayed a Jesus looking at a haloed Elvis. Uh, There was a picture of Jesus created out of skateboards. Uh, I saw a picture of Jesus, uh, a number of pictures of Jesus helping a kid swing a baseball bat. And a baby Jesus made out of radishes. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I'm guessing someone really loves radishes. And in each of these misrepresentations of Jesus, I think that what we find is something about humanity trying to create a Jesus that loves what they love, a Jesus that is actually a little bit more like them than the Jesus that we have been, had revealed to us in his very word. So a misrepresentation of Jesus is a dangerous thing. And I believe it can get ugly quick. So I still remember one time when I got a phone call from a newlywed uh, a woman who told me that she was abandoning her husband to seek a divorce. And she said that he had done nothing wrong, and she knew what the Bible said on the manor. But eventually what she said was this, I just want to be happy, and I'm not happy. And I believe that Jesus wants me to be happy. And so I believe Jesus would be happy with what I'm doing. Now, this is actually, I believe, a pretty complicated statement to unpack. It's not as easy as it might sound, but I think that at least it illustrates one really important point, a dilemma that reveals whether or not we are truly worshiping Jesus or an image of Jesus that we have crafted in our own minds. So what do you find that the will of God, what you do with it, when it endangers your human desires, your will? When you are confronted by what God's word says clearly, and you know that you have a desire that conflicts with that, what is it that you do with that, that feeling and that experience? How do you respond? How do you leave that? I believe that's exactly what we're going to be looking at in our hopeful exile series this morning as we've come to 1 Peter 4, 1-6, to that Patrick just read for us. Uh, Here we have seen that Peter's addressing uh, this very issue. Now, by way of refresher, if you're just joining us, Peter is in this letter writing to a mostly Gentile audience spread throughout churches in the Roman provinces of what today would be modern day Turkey. And as he's writing to them, we know that they are experiencing all kinds of suffering for their faith. And it's ranging from social pressure, like what you might experience at home, to the occasional sporadic political persecution, where things are getting hot. And this has left them feeling like they have overstayed their welcome in their very own homes. Now, our section, you'll remember, it began back up in 3.8, where Peter told us, he called Christians, to a kind of unity and humility of mind. That's where he began. You need to think about your mind. I want you to have unity and humility. And then he makes a beeline to the unique suffering, the once-for-all death of Jesus Christ. Christ on the cross to bring us all the way home to God. Uh, then he, he, he revels in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus where he went to heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father, high above every power. That's the image that he has just given us in verses 18 to 22. And that's where he is looking, that death and resurrection and ascension, when he says in verse 4-1 this morning, since therefore... Since therefore, since we have seen that Jesus suffered and now he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, high above every earthly power, is at home with God, that is where I'm going to speak to you from. And what we saw last week is that his unique sacrifice opened up the gates of heaven for you and me. That is good news. But this week, what we see is that Jesus' suffering actually models the life that will lead us to glory. So here's our big idea. If you take notes, a great thing to write down. It is this. It is that we need to strap up our minds with the gospel to live God's will, to live for God's will every day as we await the last day. We need to strap up our minds with the gospel, to live God's will every day as we await the last day. We'll see that in a number of ways, but before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask that he would help us. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come before you as a people who are needy and eager to hear from you. And Father, some of us don't even know how badly we need to hear your voice. And so, God, as we gather before your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak in a way that would transform hearts, Lord, that there are hearts here this morning that do not know you. We pray that you would raise them to newness of life. And that there are those this morning here who know you and need to hear from you and need to be transformed more into the image of Jesus. We pray that you would do that for all of us. And so, Lord, help us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we see is this. In verses one to two, we see it's time to strap up your mind with the gospel to kill sin and live for God. It's time to strap up your mind with the gospel to kill sin and live for God. Now, you'll notice again that since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, it is signaling that Christ's suffering death that led to glory not only brings us to God, but also sets the pattern for how. We live in this time, this time. He uses that word in history as we await another time, a time of the final judgment. He says this is a time that we need to live in a unique way. Do you see it? See, Peter here uh, actually uses this word suffered, and it's in a form that actually points to a definitive past completed action. In other words, he is pointing to a time in history where Jesus definitively dealt with sin for us, at the cross. That's what he's drawing from here. You see it? Peter's moving from the exalted Christ. He's just given this grand image of Jesus, high above every power, every authority, seen and unseen. And then he says, okay, now you're ready. Let's go back and talk talk about that suffering again. I don't think that Peter wants us to lose sight of the exaltation as he talks about Christ's humiliation. He wants us to know where this story is going, but he wants us to see suffering well in light of that. And here's what he says. He says this in verse 1, in verses 1 and 2. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, I'm not sure how you view the Christian life. I'm sure there are many interpretations here. But Peter doesn't seem to be advocating a let go and let God type mentality towards Christianity. In fact, he uses and utilizes a military metaphor, arm yourselves, to describe how Jesus' suffering should reshape the way that we think about the world around us, the way that we interpret the reality that we live in. Here, what he says is, is that we need to think differently in such a way that we are able to live the rest of the time in the flesh for the will of God. Now, when I was in high school in the 90s, uh, and I have to sort of set that reference so that you understand why I use this language that seems so old, we used to joke around and say, you better strap up before you step up. Now, that's not because we were like carrying guns. I mean, we did have guns in our cars for hunting and stuff, but not like, you know, to fight people with. But the idea was that if you were going to, like, actually confront somebody, you better be ready to actually make good on whatever threats you were making, right? Like, don't step up if you're not strapped up to, like, actually take care of business. And I don't think that Peter's idea here is too far off. I mean, it's more holy than that, but it's not too far off. See, he says that we are living in a strange, dangerous zip code far from home, and we need to make sure that we never leave home without strapping up our minds with the gospel. We need to make sure we never leave home without strapping up our minds with the gospel. But you have to ask yourself in this context, who is the enemy? Who is it that we are getting ready for? Because he has listed a number of enemies throughout. You'll remember in 18 to 22, he mentioned spiritual forces that were a danger to us. He mentioned in verses 13 to 17, revilers who were reviling Christians. In verses 8 to 12, he talked about those who were doing evil towards them. Or maybe he simply has in mind this evil culture that the whole letter seems to be addressed to encouraging Christians how to live through. See, clearly they're surrounded by both human and spiritual dangers all around. But the specific danger that Peter's dealing with here, I believe, zeroes in on a problem closer to home. Are you with me? The the answer to this question, I, I believe, is illustrated really well in a book by Dave Harvey, on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do. Don't know if you've married that, uh, read that book. I would, I would commend it to you. But in it, he has a chapter where he begins by saying, I remember one morning after being married, waking up with the worst of sinners. That's a tough thing to say. And then he saves it. He says, and it was me. And maybe you've experienced that where uh, you thought you were pretty holy like I did and then you got married and you realized that like, She's not making me feel like I'm holy anymore. And then you realize, because I'm not actually as holy as I thought I was. And that's exactly the kind of image I believe that we get here in this text. An understanding, a realization that we are not as holy as we think we are left to ourselves. We are actually sinners. Don't miss this. The greatest danger, according to Peter, to humanity is mere humanity. That's our greatest danger. Now, I use that word or that phrase because that's what Paul uses to correct the church in Corinthians. Now, maybe you remember this in 1 Corinthians 3. But Paul is about the business of correcting this church for all kinds of divisions and fights and ways that they are not obeying the gospel before he stops and he says, you know what your problem is? You look like mere humans. In other words, you you look as though you are no more than mere humanity, that there is not that spirit of God that is dwelling in you that makes you different than everyone else. See, mere humanity is not united. It is not humble. It does not prioritize God's will. It sacrifices others instead of sacrificing for others. It lives for self-will or merely human passions. And we are all, we are all born with an inherited sinful nature and are sinners by nature and by choice. That's the nature of who we are. Uh, the African Bishop Augustine picked up on this. In the fourth century, he was talking to Pelagius who thought that man was basically good. He, he, he thought that man was basically good and could please God apart from God's intervening spiritual work. And he tells Pelagius this, Prior to Adam, it was possible for man not to sin, but after the fall, it was impossible for man Not to sin. Man is born a sinner. And don't miss what Peter says here, though, for sinners saved by grace. He says this if you are a sinner saved by grace, you are not left to your sin anymore. This is the good news. The death of Jesus introduced a new period of time for you and for me. A new day has dawned at the cross and a new time begins for everyone who has put their faith in Jesus. It is a new epic, a new page in history. Your life has changed. That's what Peter says here. We were freed from living chained to human passions to living for the will of God. That is a gift that is given to believers. See, faith signals an allegiance change. An allegiance change where we put sin to death in the power of the one who died for our sins. Don't miss this. The new era of redemptive history is marked by fighting merely human passions. We will not be perfect until Jesus returns, but a definitive shift has happened for the believer. And the real question is, do we take God's side against sin or sin's side against God? That tells us something fundamentally about who we are. See, our greatest enemies are not external but internal. Mere humanity is the enemy of living as the children of God. Now, because the war is internal, both war and peace can be dangerous for your soul. You might feel like there are certain places that are safe, but the Bible tells us that we need to always be armed and ready. We can get caught up in, in dangerous places, both in war and peace. We can get caught up in thinking about God's good gifts in such a way that It mutes living for the will of God in our lives. Have you ever gotten to that place where, man, life is good, and I don't know if I want anything to change? Jesus doesn't need to come back. Things are great. We can begin to believe that the ultimate good of our families is creating a never-ending cycle of warm feels that we can Facebook about. But if not tethered to the gospel, it can lead us further and further from prizing God's will above our own above making sacrifices so that more people can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and seeing our children sanctified in the image of God, not just well-behaved kids that make other parents jealous. Good jobs, raises, awards, and promotions can lead to compromising, congregating with the pillar and buttress of truth. That is the church, the place where we seek to revel over the will of God. Good things drive us away from the necessary things dating godly people aimed at marriage can lull us to sleep see war is as dangerous as peace too though suffering through deadly diseases or chronic pain or terrible broken relationships can also paralyze us and leave us vulnerable to those merely human passions have i missed anybody this morning We are in dangerous places, whether it be war and peace. And that is in the moment, it's in that moment that I believe that Satan finds an audience with our hearts and asks us all kinds of questions. Questions that we need to be ready to answer. We need to be ready and equipped and armed to deal with the questions that are coming our way. So that's when Satan finds an audience with our hearts and asks questions like this. Does God's word really say that you need to obey him? Does that sound pretty familiar? That's that Matthew 4 kind of thing where Satan himself attacks Jesus and tries to have him turn on the will of God. And and the very first thing he does is he goes right at the word of God and says, hath God said this? Can you trust God's word? And what is it that Jesus uses to come back at him? And it's the very word of God itself. So he's being asked, we are gonna be asked this question, does God's word really say that you need to obey him? And here's another little just interesting little thing that, God, that Satan does, because he's tricky, right? He says, and by the way, isn't God forgiving? So does it really matter that you obey? I mean, won't he just forgive you? Or what about this? Don't you know what will make you happy better than God does? I mean, he's kind of busy up there, and you're sort of like in real time, and so maybe God just doesn't know how to make you happy like you know how to make you happy. Or maybe there's somebody else that knows how to make you happy in a way that God doesn't. Or another question that you might ask is, is God holding out on me? Maybe you've been there where you feel like, kind of like the guest that shows up to a house and you know the family is like hiding the good cookies in the back because they've just brought you out the cheap cookies. You're like, come on, like don't hold back, don't be stingy with grace, bring out the good stuff. And you view God kind of like that, like he's stingy with grace as though he's got to hold back stuff because he doesn't have enough, right? It's a lie, it's a lie that Satan approaches us with, or maybe You're single and you're saying, God, don't you know how lonely I am? I'm desperate. Do you really know what's good for me? Or does God even see me? Have you ever felt that one? I mean, can I trust that he is for me when it feels like he's not here? And if you've ever suffered, you know how your your heart begins to ask, what did I do to deserve this? And God, don't you love me? So why? Sometimes it might feel like you're storming the gates of hell with a water pistol but God says the gospel packs some lethal heat when it comes to protecting the mind and fighting off questions like these. Are, are you ready? Are you equipped? Are you armed for the kinds of mind battles that you're going to be facing? Are you ready to think in this way that Peter is calling us to? You know, if so, you have answers to questions like these. You know that whenever you are confronted with a question about God, uh, really uh, requiring you to be obedient to him, you, you hear the voice of Jesus say, but if you love me, you'll obey me. It's a love issue. And, and you hear Jesus say, and not only that, remember, I too obeyed the Father, even to the point of death, where I said, not my will, but your will be done. Or, or, or whenever you have the question that comes before you, uh, does God really understand happiness? We know that he values happiness. Uh, joy comes from God. He created this stuff. And Hebrews 12.1 tells us that Jesus knew the joy and knows joy for it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now, by the way, seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. See, God is the author of happiness, and he will not let any God pretenders offer lasting joy that they are incapable of creating. And maybe you're asking if God's holding out on you. Well, that's an easy one, isn't it? And if God gave his eternal Son, whom he loved with an infinite love, to save you, to rescue you from the gates of hell, to absorb the wrath of God that you deserved, that we deserved, then how much more can we trust that he will give us all things, that he is never holding back from us, that he will give till it hurts, he will give what he loves most. And does Jesus see you? Well, He saw you before you were born. He saw you when he took the cross for your sins. He saw you at your worst and he died to bring you to God, seeing you in plain sight. We may never understand why we suffer in the strange ways that we do, but what we do know is that we have a God who never flinched at entering into our suffering with us to deliver us out of it, that one day Christ, who holds the universe together by his very words, will also stoop down and wipe away every tear. That's the Savior that we serve. Now, these questions are coming when we least expect it. When we were playing Monopoly at Christmas and we were being ridiculed for our faith in Christ. And that's why Peter says that it's time to be ready like a soldier for the war. We need to to strap up as soon as we wake up, right? Like in the morning, if we really take this seriously, we need to understand that the battle begins as we wake up before we get out of bed. We need to be ready to prepare our minds to face all that will face us. But notice that he also points here to a future coming time. He says this is the time to be armed. But also don't forget that there is a coming time. A time that is beyond this present dangerous time. He speaks of the rest of time. The rest of time. Anticipating, I believe, a new coming day when Jesus himself would come to judge the living and the dead. So the rest of time, I believe, is even here arousing a kind of expectation for a new day that is marked by discernible differences. For now, the fight is not to live for human passions, but instead to live for the will of God. That's this time. And Jesus died with respect to sin and invites us to die to sin as a demonstration that we are the people of God of God that's what God's people do they have died with respect to sin it doesn't mean that they are perfect we will not be perfect till Jesus returns but it does mean that we are living under the authority of a new king see this speaks of this human passions that we are to fight they speak of longings cravings desires Those things that are are natural to humanity, that all humans share. But here, I believe Peter is actually zeroing in on those desires that clearly conflict with the will of God. It's wanting something God prohibits or not wanting something God commands. That's, That's what he's talking about. A desire that longs for something that either is what God prohibits or it is not desiring something that God commands. So what do you do when God's will threatens your will? How do you respond? Well, I love where Peter travels from here in verses 3 to 5. He says, second this, it's great news that you're not Gentiles anymore. It's great news that you're not Gentiles anymore. Now, here's what's fascinating. Every week we remind you that he's speaking to a mostly Gentile audience, but catch what he says here in verses 3 to 5. It's almost as if he's forgotten who he's speaking to. He says this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. In respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, did you catch that? Peter talks to these Christians as though they are no longer Gentiles. Why? Gentile isn't just an ethnic indicator, okay? Uh, That might be one confusion. Uh, Gentile is not merely saying that you are not ethnically Jewish. Uh, It's actually a a word that describes covenantal distinctions. Uh, So Israel were, were the people of God who were in covenant with God, whom God had made a covenant with. Gentiles were those outside of the covenant, In other words, Gentile doesn't primarily describe ethnicity or what color they were, but how they stood in relation to God's special covenantal love. And those outsiders who were outside of the covenant of God at one point here have actually been brought into the fold of God such that they are not any longer spoken of as those who are outside of God's covenant. They are fully members of the people of God. See, there was a time when they received their voter registration that they would have to check Gentile instead of Jew. But but they don't do that anymore. They, they check the people of God. That's who they are. That's their identity. That's what shapes them. And that's what it means by this statement, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Just think about what that means. There was a time when they did what the Gentiles want to do. And you might be thinking, well, what was it that the Gentiles wanted to do? What were their human desires? Well, he, he just gave us a list, Right? A list of all kinds of things. The drunkenness, the orgies, the lawless idolatry. Like, those are the things that these people once were involved in. That is the life that they once lived. That's the way they thought. But things have changed drastically. He says, This is no longer you. Uh, Peter's commentary on that and that kind of living that was passed for them is this. He says, the time has passed. Enough is enough. You have been made to live for more. Now, why would he say that? Well, catch this. Doing what the Gentiles want to do or following the will of man instead of the will of God looks like all kinds of sins. And here's the encouragement. You know, some of you this morning are saying, and such were some of us. And this was me. Maybe this morning you're saying, That list of sins sounds like my life before Jesus. That's exactly where I was. That is what I lived for. And this morning, I think that what Jesus would want you to hear as one who has come to Christ and maybe you're struggling with, am I really good enough to be with Jesus? The answer is no. But are you really truly fully with Jesus? The answer is yes. None of us are truly good enough to be with Jesus. It is all because of what Christ has done in his definitive work on the cross that makes us acceptable before God. See, Jesus is enough to make you fully part of the people of God. God doesn't wince with anyone that Jesus brings to him. Isn't that glorious news? But take note, he says that true life will, if you have true faith, it leads to a new life. That's the, the reality of what happens with true faith. See, self-will leads to self-indulgence. Selfish desires can lead us to any kind can't lead us to any kind of Of lasting joy or happiness. It wasn't made to be that way. In fact, here's the the secret. The more that you run after selfish desires, the more that you actually run away from lasting joy. That's the bait and the switch. The more that you are running after the promises that you believe that any kind of sin offers you, any kind of joy or happiness that you think that you're going to get if you catch this thing that you're longing for, The reality is that it's going to lead to sorrow and death every time. And the further that you're going to be from the true and lasting joy that God has created you for. See, we were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And when our desires take over as the God of our lives to be served, it will drive us mad. Because we can never find the deep satisfaction our hearts long for apart from God. We can try to turn, manipulate, and distort good things trying to satisfy ourselves, but it always leads to sorrow and death. Now, I'm not sure it's bad to rehearse um, how bad the past was either. I-, I think this is the invitation that Peter is actually giving to these Christians. Think about what life was like before you became the people of God. And we see that throughout the Bible. I mean, just think about Israel. Didn't Israel have the same experience? you remember that God delivered them out of slavery and bondage to Egypt And they're in the desert not very long before they're hungry and thirsty. And what are they thinking about? The kinds of foods that they got to eat back in Egypt. And it says that they longed to go back to Egypt. What happened in Egypt? They killed their babies. They had them in bondage. They were miserable. They were crying out for salvation. And they didn't get just a couple of days into hunger and thirst. And all of a sudden they're saying, take us back to this horrible place from which we were enslaved. I think the same kind of image is here. Do you not remember how you were enslaved to these sins? How they ruined your lives? and How God has come and through Christ giving you a new life and a new identity wrapped up in all that I am. See here, you'll notice that Peter says, and I believe that he's actually doing something significant. I believe he's picking up on the flood analogy of Noah that he had been speaking of above when he says this, He says this, notice again, look in your text. It says, With respect to this being their sinful way of life, the Gentiles, catch this, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Do you see it? Holiness shocks Gentiles, those who are not in covenant with God. Former Gentiles look strange to them. It's not the color of their skin, it's not their accent, it's not their, li- it's their lives that actually strikes them as different and odd. And the Gentiles treat them like outsiders. Now I'm sure you've all experienced this before. You, you, you probably, we all have our, our stories of the way that we've experienced um, being in some ways uh, maligned for our faith. Uh, when I was in college, I actually worked on an oil field for summer is a grunt, and so I often found myself jumping into trucks that I didn't know where they were going with people that I did not know. That could have ended badly, but one day uh, I jumped in, and I noticed that there was this air freshener on a guy's truck, and it had, we'll just say, bad pictures on it, and I remember looking at it and going, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that was a thing, and so I'm looking out the window, and I'm sitting there just trying to kind of ignore it, and I'm thinking, man, like, maybe this is just a short ride, and we can get out of here, and I said, so how long is this trip? He said, oh, like an hour and a half. I was like, oh, man, this is awkward. And so I said, well, is there any way that maybe we could just take that down for like the duration of this trip? And you can do what you need to later, but I just like for now, it'd be helpful for me. And he immediately rips it off of the, the mirror, almost rips the mirror off, throws it under the seat, and he starts screaming, well, it looks like we got a Christian here, Bob, one of them Christian do-getters. It was odd. It was awkward. Sat there in silence for probably, felt like an hour, it was probably five minutes. And I said, so you got family? (laughs) It turned out his stepdaughter was in my youth group. So anyway, (laughs) just when you think it can't get any worse. And I'm guessing you've had those kinds of experiences as well. You know, sometimes some people feel judged by your mere presence and it angers them because they know that you love Christ and you're trying to honor him. Of course, we're not talking about people feeling judged because you're smug or self-righteous. That's another kind of thing. That's not what we're talking about. This is the honest pursuit of a happy, winsome, brave holiness that reflects the character of God. And don't miss this. Being godly will not always translate into popularity. But listen to what Peter calls their sin, a flood of debauchery. You know, I don't think that this imagery is accidental. Accidental. See, where they see, these Gentiles see self-fulfillment, God's people see it differently like Peter. God's people see the waters of God's judgment rising like in the days of Noah. See, Peter models how God's people interpret the pursuit of satisfaction through sin with the mind of of Christ. This is how the mind of Christ sees those same sins that once they saw as hopeful and glorious, now they see them as the judgment waters rising and verse 5 explains that those who malign God's people today will have to give an account before God on the last day he says this they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead see these passions are actually the flood waters that God has given them over to They are drowning in their sin. They think the sin is the object of their joy and the thing that's going to bring them satisfaction. And they don't realize it is actually enslaving them to death and a future judgment. Jesus himself has said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And on that day of judgment, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This morning, if you're here with us and and you're not a Christian and you have not given your life to Christ. You have not put your faith in him. Let me just beg you this morning. Let me beg you to, to understand that the life that you are living, and, and only by the Holy Spirit can you see this, the things that you are living for, if it is not Christ, it ends in judgment. There is no hope. But Christ has come as your good and satisfactory sacrifice to die in your place for your sins to bring you all the way to God. He is the only way. And don't take another day, another step, another breath without putting your faith in him today. And if you need help with that, I would love to talk to you about that after the service. But there's no greater need that you have than to come to Christ for salvation. He saves all from the wrath of God who put their faith in him. But there's another thing that we see here. And that's the hope that Peter gives to believers in verse 6. And this is what he says. He says this. Third, death isn't the last word for Christians because Jesus. Death isn't the last word for Christians because Jesus. Now you might ask why Christians still die if Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil. And this text, this text tells us that God is patient and it's not time yet. I believe verse 6 is Peter's pastoral counsel to Christians concerned about other Christians who have died as they faithfully lived for Christ. What happens to them? And here's what he says. He says this in verse 6. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, who are the dead that the gospel was preached to here? I don't think it's the spirits that were spoken of in 319. Some see this as all of those who died receiving kind of a second chance, like, we talked about that view earlier uh, in, in the sermon series where they believe that Christ went and preached to dead people and gave them a second chance at salvation. But the Bible, and especially First Peter, don't offer a second chance, but encourage believers to faithfully endure suffering as a proof of genuine faith. And so the dead who are, are preached to are actually, I believe, those who put their faith in Christ and lived for Him but died. And I take that though judged in the flesh the way people are, to speak not of the final judgment that he mentions in verse 5, but the judgment of men that leads to death. And the last part of the verse, they might live in the Spirit, of God, uh, live in the, spirit the way God does, anticipates their resurrection, the one that awaits all who have died waiting for Christ's return. So like Jesus, they will be raised from the dead, and after their suffering, even to death. Now, living in the Spirit speaks of this resurrection that awaits all of those who died in the faith. And Peter says, Jesus shall one day judge the living and the dead and vindicate his people who lived for the will of God up to death. So here's what I want to end. I want to end with just like five quick ways that we can strap up our minds with the gospel, maybe six, to be ready to live for Christ day in and day out. The Bible gives us a number of ways, but I want to just give some some quick ones. The first is, We need to repent and believe. It begins there. You're not ready to to strap up with the gospel if you've not put your faith in the gospel. We need to put our faith in Christ and receive the the Holy Spirit if we're to have the mind of Christ. We cannot obey Christ. We cannot fight for Christ if, if we do not have his spirit within us leading us and living through us. The spirit drives us to Christ and his word. And the primary weapon that we need for our eternal condition, our internal condition... As an internal change that is wrought about by the Holy Spirit. And that happens through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So we need to repent and believe. Second, we need to kill sin. We need to kill sin. Uh, John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I think that's a good motto for the Christian life. That is speaking of uh, what he would call mortification or a, a putting to death of Sin. And we need to mortify human passions that seek to subvert the will of God. Sin leads to sorrow and death. But with the power of the Spirit, we need to seek to put our sins to death because they don't belong in the life of Christians. Uh, I don't know how eager we are to get rid of sin in our lives. I don't know if we want to as bad as we ought to. You know, we're eager to do all kinds of things. And we can see a kind of intensity when something matters to us. Uh, I still remember um, we... We've had a number of pets in my home, uh, probably like nine um, at one time, and then like sporadic throughout. It's kind of like a pet hotel coming in and coming out all the time. But one time, uh, we ended up with um, like four rodents, like two gerbils and two hamsters. And sometimes kids would like let them loose. And uh, I remember one night, uh, one got loose. We didn't know where it was. We'd been seeking it out for a few days. We thought if we wait much longer, we can just follow the smell. And then I heard something sort of scratching in the couch one night when I was studying, and I went over to the couch and realized that he had chewed a hole up into the couch and was living there. I guess had food for weeks or something. And so that's another story. But he's, he's in there. He's happy. He's like living it up. And we're like, how do we get this guy out of this couch? Uh, simultaneously, we have a missionary who's staying with us. And he comes in, right, like in the middle of this thing. And he finds me in the middle of the night with the couch up like on its corner. And I'm shaking it. While, like, Carrie and and Ben are sitting there, like, grabbing up in it with a stethoscope to find this guy. And then she screams, ah, because, like, it bites her, but we get him out, right? Like, what if we were just that desperate to get sin out of our lives? Right? Like, how desperate are we? Like, are we lifting the couch up? Are we shaking that guy? Are we saying, like, man, this is not good for me? I don't know. We need to take, I think, sin more seriously. We, we struggle with lust and arrogance and jealousy, division, drunkenness. And it's a bad flood that you don't want to get caught up in. Third, live for God. This is vivification. It means positively obeying God, to vivify God. This is one of the best ways to protect your conscience. You, know, you want to talk about your mind, your conscience is part of that, that sense of what's right and wrong. You don't want to break that. You don't want to sear that by not obeying your conscience, knowing that when it says that something's wrong, you shouldn't do it, and when something's right, you ought to. Don't sear your conscience. Obey the clear commands of God. When it comes to questions of discernment, ask what the Bible clearly teaches. Obey that. If it's confusing, seek counsel from pastors. And on issues that aren't clear, because the Bible doesn't give you all the rules, right? Like, as far as, like, here's you know, what you do, what you ought to do on Facebook and not. But if you're seeking, like, discernment issues, seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and the counsel of pastors and make a, tr- a decision and trust God. That's decisions like who to marry, what job to take, what school to go to. Fourth, get an objective perspective on your life. The Bible says we are all in danger of self-deception and that we need others to help us see ourselves with greater clarity. Uh, like the side mirror of, for your blind spots in your car. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I have a, a car that like has this screen that when I turn the turn signal on, it actually turns a little screen on and shows me who's on my blind spot. And it's great except when I'm not driving in that car and I come to get used to it, and it's not there and I almost hit people all the time now. It's because I got so dependent on having like this, this side view, my blind spot. You know, I think that discipleship and, and mentors and people speaking into your life are like that. Like you, if you were left to yourself, are in danger of being self-deceived. As smart as you are and as much of the Bible that you know, you are in danger of being self-deceived. And you need somebody who objectively can speak into your life. So who is that? Who who knows you well enough to see your blind spots that you let into your life? Who do you speak to in such a way that you're like, I'm going to lead with, this is embarrassing for me to tell you. Like who do you have in your life like that? Or are you hiding your blind spots from you and others so that nobody can see them? Let me just encourage you. Find at least one or two people in your life that you can meet with regularly to talk about the Scriptures with and open up your life to more and more so that they can see those spots, show them to you, and help rescue them out of them. Fifth, be faithful to your local church. Hebrews 10, 19-25 says that we need to meet together all the more as we see the day approaching, the day of God's judgment. The church is the pillar and buttress of truth. If you want to get your mind right, then why don't you hang out with the people who are the pillar and buttress of truth? That's a good way to get your mind right. It's not safe to stray from meeting with God's people. So do you find yourself meeting with God's people more and more or less and less? My guess is if it's less and less, you're in danger, you don't know. And finally, don't lose sight of that last day. That last day is coming quickly. You should pray and hope for and long for that day. You should be getting your your life ready for that day. Are you ready? Let's pray.